What's going on, guys? Welcome back to an episode of Flexibility is Freedom. My name is Tom, and on this podcast, we discuss passive income and lifestyle design. This is episode number 19, and on this episode, I'm going to discuss my Q1 2022 results, talk a little bit about March results for my business, thedermdetective.com. And for the most of this podcast, I'm going to talk about building a defensive portfolio uh, for the upcoming inflation and possible recession that I think is uh, just around the corner. But first, I want to speak a little bit about Q1 and March. So Q1 kind of just finished, and what a crazy time it is. Um, in any case, regardless of uh, what happens you know, on the macro side, on the international stage, the only real things that individuals like you and I can do is to prepare early, uh, take a look at what might be coming down the horizon, and position our portfolio, position our assets, and position our lifestyle so that we are not harmed and possibly even benefit from those future changes. So that's one thing that's really important for individuals to do. Taking a look at the business performance in Q1 and for March, uh, my current website, my main website, thedermdetective.com, continued to perform at a very steady rate. Revenue was about the same each month. Uh, revenue for March was a little bit lower, coming in around 13.50, down about 5% from February levels. However, traffic continued to surge upwards, reaching a new record high of 18,400. Uh, this is equivalent to almost 600 sessions per day, so you can think of that as about 600 unique visitors per day, which is uh, pretty awesome. Uh, I remember way back when I only had, you know, 25 visitors a day or 100 visitors a day. So really exciting to see it get up to such an incredible level. Uh, in terms of profitability, it did take a little bit of a dip, down 18% month over month. This was mainly because my revenue from my primary non-Amazon merchant was down about 36% month over month. Um, so profitability at that merchant decreased. I might investigate next week or next month rather. Uh, but sometimes you have these changes in conversion rates or average cart sizes over time. Uh, and there's just not much you can do as an affiliate um, because our main metric, our main goal is to send clicks and send qualified traffic to these partners. Uh, for March, Amazon was actually uh, an outperformer. Earnings was up 20% month over month. Uh, this is reflected in my total Amazon concentration or Amazon risk is up to 55% now from 43%. So a little higher than I'm comfortable with. I like to see that trend back down to 40%. However, having said that, Amazon is still a good place to send traffic. It's very stable. You know you're gonna get some level of conversions. In fact, recently, Amazon increased some of their um, um, some of their affiliate rates uh, just temporarily though from today, which is April 4th to May 4th. So about a 30-day uh, temporary increase in affiliate rates. So it's interesting that they are doing some of these types of campaigns as well, uh, boosting, uh, boosting affiliate rates from time to time. However, like I said, I'd like to see that trend down a little bit lower. In terms of activities for my main website, thedermdetective.com, I have not been really active in terms of posting new blog posts myself. I've been trying to upgrade some of my blog posts, um, trying to increase some of the conversion rates. For the main part, I've been having my external content writer and my virtual assistant work on the website. So having some new content come in from the writer. Um, most of the time I edit it myself and then I post it on the website. And then I'll have my virtual assistant do some web research, some product research, 
to assist with that process. Uh, so far, it's been working well. I think in the future, I'll be scaling that process a little more, perhaps adding another writer, uh, having my virtual assistant take over some of the WordPress, some of the administrative tasks as well, uh, so that the process is a bit more automated than it currently is. So next, for the most of this uh, podcast, I want to talk a little bit about building a defensive portfolio, a portfolio that's going to uh, not only preserve the wealth that you've built uh, through the next period, which I believe will be very inflationary, uh, but also provide some kind of long-term capital appreciation so that you're actually building wealth over time uh, and able to use that, uh, whether it's to travel in the future, to provide you know yourself with security so you can quit your job, so you can do other things, uh, providing that kind of freedom in the long term. So, you know, I've been speaking about inflation for a couple of months now, especially on my blog, flexibilitiesfreedom.com. Uh, I think when you look at the macroeconomic picture, uh, we're still, you know, very much poised for additional inflation. Inflation is currently running maybe 15 to 20%. If you think about uh, the cost of groceries, the cost of gas, the cost of, you know, real estate, where I live is probably up 20 to 25% year over year in many markets. And, you know, when you think about the effect that's going to have on your standard of living, um, your real income in most cases is going to be down and it's going to be decreasing every year because the amount of you know money that you're being paid for whatever job you do, or even if you run a business, likely is not keeping up with inflation in real terms. So inflation is 15, 20%. You need to be paid 15, 20% more in order just to keep up with that. Now, the reason I say that inflation is likely to persist is when you look at our our central bankers, look at our policymakers and government, uh, there just is not that um, resolve to fight inflation. There seems to be much more of a cautionary approach. They want to raise rates very slowly, um, if at all. They're talking the talk, but I think even Wall Street believes that you know, they're probably not going to raise rates sufficiently for inflation to come back down to normal levels, which would be closer to the two to three percent, um, you know, closer to two and a half percent, really. So I think we're going to see elevated inflation, and I think inflation has the potential to run away, especially if we have a recession in the near future. Um, there's been a lot of news recently about the yield curve inversing, and I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert in bonds or anything, but. Uh, historically, when yield curves inverse, which is the difference between the 10-year treasury and the two-year treasury, it is a very good indicator that a recession is around the corner. Um, the idea is that long-term rates are equivalent to or lower than short-term rates. Uh, investors essentially are pricing in the possibility that we're going to have a recession. And so you know, central banks are going to need to uh, decrease, artificially decrease the interest rates uh, in order to stimulate economic growth. And so when we think about that as the backdrop, you know, I'm very much um, for my own personal portfolio, positioning it in a very defensive manner, um, looking at assets that are number one, going to survive inflation. So as I said earlier, preserve wealth, you know, the money that you've made that you've put in your savings account or into stocks or real estate, wherever you've put it, making sure that that actually survives inflation. You're not coming out of this period poorer than you were before. Uh, and then number two, making sure that, you know, when you go through this recessionary period, which I think um, in the next one to two years could occur, uh, making sure that you're in assets that benefit from recession are recession resi resistant, um, sort of counter cyclical, if you will, to the business cycle. And so having those, you know, goals 
is helping to inform what I think is going to be a defensive portfolio. So jumping into what I think a good defensive portfolio is, this is something that is um, based on my kind of thinking, based on where I am in my life. So not financial advice, make sure you do your own research. Um, but this is just what I have and, and what I'm thinking of. So I've kind of created a very simple portfolio. I've split it into thirds. So one third in each asset category. Um, the first one is going to be real estate, uh, a very more traditional asset class, a very obvious one for hedging against inflation. And I'll speak to the pros and cons of that from my perspective. Uh, the, the second one is cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin. And I see that as a very nice complement to real estate. It has some qualities that are very, um, very interesting for today's world that are very applicable um, and also has the potential for long term appreciation. And then the third part is defensive stocks. So more traditional um, equity market stocks. And here I'm looking for stocks that are recession resistant, that are very uh, defensive in nature, but also have some of that longer term growth prospects. So that would be something especially towards the, um, the online sector, the digital space. So those are the type of stocks that I'm interested in. So first, I'm going to go through them in order. Uh, real estate is a very traditional asset class, along with gold. It's one of the more traditional plays when you're trying to hedge against inflation. You sit on real estate uh, with the premise that because real estate is a hard asset, it's a real asset, no matter how much fiat money the government prints, or the central bank prints, um, your real estate is going to maintain its value simply because, you know, there's a scarcity element to it. There's not enough real estate. Real estate has a utility element. Uh, it's useful. You can rent it out for cash flow. Uh, your cash flows can um, eventually inflate to meet market rents. Uh, obviously, there's some limitations based on rental regulations, but for the most part, real estate generates cash flow. It's useful. You can live in real estate if it's your primary residence. Uh, and the value that real estate tends to hedge against inflation, I believe this has been proven historically when you look at the 1970s um, and also when you look at, um, you know, cumulative inflation since maybe the, the 1990s or so and you look at how house prices have trended um, in that last about two decades or so. So the primary way that I would get exposure to real estate is really just buying a home the most traditional way, um, sitting on it, uh, maybe renting out part of it, living in it if you um, if you so desire and, and it makes sense for you. Uh, the reason for the direct exposure is you're able to take on a mortgage and by taking on the mortgage, what you're really doing is you are shorting or you are um, you're borrowing or shorting fiat currency and you're going along or you're buying real estate. And that's the best play you can do when it comes to inflation because your fiat dollars are eroding in value. So your mortgage is actually the value of it is actually eroding, which is nice. Uh, the same thing happens for government debt. Uh, they're inflating away their debt. Essentially, it's a very classic play uh, that the government likes to do. But on the other hand, your hard asset, your real estate is appreciating in nominal dollars. So that's a great play to do if you can get direct exposure. Now, obviously, in some cases, um, for, for, for many people, you're not able to afford real estate where you live. You can't find the right deals. You don't have the mortgage. Uh, you don't meet the mortgage requirements or whatever the case may be. Maybe you are traveling around and you don't want to get into real estate. So some other opportunities you may want to do like a co-investment. You may want to invest alongside some family or friends and have a fractional portion, maybe a 20% portion um, of a house that they're looking to buy. Um, and that way you get a little bit of direct exposure as well. You might be able to apply some leverage 
um, through the through the form of a mortgage or a loan, uh, and that way you also get some of the benefits when that real estate appreciates. And then the third option is to do something called a REIT, which is a real estate investment trust, which is essentially a stock or an ETF uh, that provides you that exposure to the real estate industry uh, because the company will hold you know hundreds or thousands of these properties. And so you're getting the benefit of uh, liquidity because you can trade in and out of these positions, uh, but you're also getting some portion of that underlying um, real estate prices or, or rental cash flows. Now, the problem with using a REIT, though, is you're probably not going to apply the same amount of leverage just because you're trading it in a brokerage account. Uh, you're buying it through, um, you know, through like an investor uh, platform and they're not going to let you borrow, you know, 80 percent of the of the value against it. So. That's something to keep in mind, and, and it is a big driver of the returns when it comes to real estate. Some of the risks of real estate that I see is, um, you know, real estate is an interesting one because ultimately, who determines what you own, right? In terms of real estate, it's ultimately tied to property rights. Um, the government enforces property rights, land rights. So ultimately, you are held by sovereign and political risk. So real estate's always kind of influenced by the political atmosphere, um, always going to be at the whims of macroeconomic policy as well. So you just think about um, in today's context, you look at the Ukraine and Russia conflict, you know, real estate is one of the first things that's going to tank in any of those countries. People are going to be fleeing from uh, the country from from things like property because ultimately it's not portable, right? You can't take your house with you. You can't leave the country and take your house, you know, in times of such you know turmoil, uh, real estate prices are going to go down substantially. And probably not even going to be able to sell your house, right? So it's very illiquid. The other thing to think about when you're taking on real estate exposure, especially the direct type, is you know, you're going to incur a lot of carrying costs. So the number one thing is your mortgage. Uh, you're going to take on a lot of leverage. And so you need to have that cash flow to maintain and service that debt. Um, and taking into account the fact that interest rates are on the rise, if they rise substantially, do you have sufficient cash flow? Do you have a sufficient buffer uh, to make those interest payments, uh, to make the mortgage payments rather, uh, so that you don't default on your mortgage, which is very important. The other carrying costs would be things like property taxes, which can go up over time, uh, paying your utilities and other maybe like condo maintenance fees if you own a condo. So making sure that you have the right cash flow profile to meet those obligations uh, and ultimately you're going to be able to keep that real estate in, in good condition. There's also things like repair costs. Uh, which can vary depending on what kind of property you're buying. Is it a big fixing, you know, a big fix me up type of project or is it kind of turnkey? So those will depend on the specific property. So that's real estate kind of a nutshell. I really like having exposure. I think everyone should have some exposure to real estate. Um, ideally, you you live in the house yourself and so you don't have to pay rent to anybody. You have a place to, to live. Um, and it's going to be appreciating with the market. Plus, you get to take on up to 80% um, sort of LTV. And so that way you're essentially your short fiat dollars and you're long a hard asset, which is what you want to do in this inflationary environment. The second uh, portion of my portfolio, the second third, is going to be cryptocurrency with a target weighting of 70, 80% Bitcoin. Now, I understand this will be a more controversial position uh, in today's kind of context, uh, but kind of hear me out a little. I think there are some interesting qualities, uh, particularly of Bitcoin that I like that I think will position uh, the portfolio really well for the upcoming macro trends. So the first couple of qualities, I'm speaking specifically about Bitcoin here. The first couple of qualities that I like is number one is decentralized and it's censorship resistant. So 
we talk about decentralized a lot in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is one of the most proven uh, cryptocurrencies that are you know, truly decentralized. And what that really means is there's no single entity, market participant, government, group of governments that are able to actually um, you know, control Bitcoin that can take over the network. We call this a 51% attack. Uh, this is based on the fact that Bitcoin has a very wide number of validators. They're in different countries. They're in different um, types of institutions. There's um, you know, big companies that are validators. There's small companies. There's personal people who are you know, validating Bitcoin. They download the, the Bitcoin, Bitcoin client and they can act as a validator. So that gives the network a high degree of uh, resistance against you know, censorship, against governments who want to shut down platforms. And that's something we see a lot uh, in today's cancel culture. You think of any kind of social media platform or, or a lot of companies in these days. You can even think of the Ukraine-Russia conflict as partly cancel culture, where Russian companies are being canceled or they're being you know, kicked out of SWIFT. So all of those things are part of the decentralized nature of Bitcoin, which is no single person or even group of entities are able to, you know, basically exclude other people from the network. Uh, also, uh, more closer to home, the Canadian government more recently um, had a bit of a, um, we'll call it a um, disagreement uh, with the Canadian truckers who were protesting the, um, against the government's actions. And the Canadian government introduced or they invoked a, a, a um, legislation called the Emergencies Act, which basically allowed them to freeze uh, individual bank accounts without any kind of legal due process. And so that was something that I found extremely troubling. And so having an asset that is decentralized and is censorship resistant, meaning again, the, the, even the government cannot force uh, an institution to give up your Bitcoin or to freeze your Bitcoin. Uh, that to me is very interesting. Now, of course, you want to make sure you understand the nuances of Bitcoin that you are you know, holding uh, your currency in a cold wallet so that you actually control it. You have the keys. Uh, if it's on an exchange or if it's on any kind of platform where you're not controlling the keys, then of course a government can come along and force them to give up the Bitcoin or to freeze your assets. That's entirely possible. So there I'm speaking about um, having your Bitcoin in cold storage, which is typically um, something like a hardware wallet. The second quality I like about Bitcoin is the fact that it has a finite supply um, written into the software itself. It's going to be capped at 21 million Bitcoin. I've seen some interesting um, analysis and insights that, you know, because Bitcoin is lost over time, some people have mined it or some people, um, they had Bitcoin in the past and they forgot their password. So it's kind of a loss forever. So some people suggest that the real number of, of Bitcoin is going to be a far lower than 21 million. It could be 14 million, 15 million. Uh, we don't know, um, but essentially the finite supply stands in stark contrast to fiat money, which is constantly being inflated. We're constantly printing, um, adding more dollars into our circulation. So if you just kind of hold the two things and, and you look at them, you know, uh, Bitcoin is naturally going to increase in value in nominal terms because quite simply, we just have more fiat money running around and that's just going to uh, increase the price of Bitcoin because it, it's a it's a finite thing. Um, so that's an interesting part of it that I think it acts as a natural inflation hedge, um, even though there, there's still a debate about whether it's really an inflation hedge or not. Um, but I think when you look at that quality, it's clearly, um, you know, it's clearly designed around inflation and making sure that it's going to be a store of value. Um, that's something you want to park your money in for long term wealth. Uh, the third uh, quality of Bitcoin is more to do with the day to day use of Bitcoin or the 
the ability to access Bitcoin. So I kind of sum this up as portability. Um, so unlike real estate, you can take your Bitcoin anywhere in the world. You don't need to put it in your pocket or your wallet. I mean, you just need to make sure you have your private keys somewhere secure so you can access it. Your Bitcoin actually lives on the digital ledger, which is in the blockchain. So you don't, it's not like you carry it around with you. Uh, very different from fiat money. Although fiat money, you can have it in a bank account as well. So in that sense, it's also electronic. Uh, it's very accessible around the world these days. Um, there's going to be exchanges, even Bitcoin ATMs, where you can go and access your Bitcoin, transact and um, uh, take it out in fiat dollars if you need to. The other thing is you can also spend your Bitcoin if you wanted to. There's a lot of peer-to-peer, -peer, or sorry, there's a, there's a bunch of options where you can spend Bitcoin using your smartphone, using a, um, a hot wallet. Um, you can spend it at uh, different types of merchants. Um, I actually recently learned that uh, Bitcoin has a layer two solution called the Lightning Network, which allows you to spend your Bitcoin at, with very low transaction expenses. So you can use it kind of like to buy your groceries, pay your rent, get paid in Bitcoin, all that good stuff. So very portable, very accessible, has a very um, massive network, uh, especially with Lightning Network. Um, that allows it to be very utilitarian so you can actually spend it so that stands in contrast to something like gold right gold you can't really you know spend gold directly at a merchant right you can't buy groceries with gold you've got to convert it into fiat there's probably there's probably a bunch of transaction fees along the way before you can actually use it to buy things so summing up my thinking about cryptocurrency um, especially bitcoin i think it's a great complement to something like real estate real estate is very illiquid Bitcoin is highly liquid, has a global market. Uh, real estate is not really portable. Bitcoin is highly portable, take it anywhere in the world. Um, Bitcoin is also stateless, right? You think about real estate, it's tied to sovereign risk, political risk. You are very much tied to the local and regional property markets. Bitcoin is international. Bitcoin is influenced by macroeconomic uh, factors around the world. It's, it's affected by the adoption rate. It's affected by global inflation rates. Um, and so the two are kind of you know, very interesting in that they complement each other and help give you a more diversified exposure uh, when you're talking about hedging against inflation. So uh, for those reasons, I really like getting into something like a Bitcoin. And I'll probably look at a couple other cryptocurrencies that might be interesting um, that are going to be a good complement to, uh, to something like a Bitcoin. The third part of my portfolio is what I call defensive stocks. Um, the qualities that I'm looking for here are, you know, recession resistance. It's got to be an industry where um, when the next, next recession hits, it's going to benefit from, or at the very least, it's going to be kind of stable through that recession. So typical industries in this category would be consumer staples. So you think grocery stores, right? People have to eat, uh, utilities because people need to continue to use, uh, electricity, gas, water, etc. And healthcare would be some of the more defensive industries. Uh, the next part is that it has to survive inflation and it has to have some level of pricing power. So we talked about, I think previously on the on the blog actually, that when you look at inflation, there are going to be winners and losers. Um, the winners, when it comes from a um, from a company standpoint, are those companies that have pricing power that are able to raise their prices in line with inflation or perhaps even outpacing inflation, and that's gonna help increase their margin. So typical examples people give are, you know, Apple, for example, right? People are very price insensitive to Apple iPhones. They wanna buy them, they wanna have them. So Apple can you know, raise prices five, 10, 15%, and people are not gonna blink when it comes to paying for those iPhones. Whereas when you look at maybe some commodity-based businesses, or sorry, businesses that are, you sell a commodity, 
Uh, if you try to raise prices, perhaps your customers are going to go to your competitors who sell the same commodity, but they didn't raise prices. So uh, that's something to take into consideration. When you think about inflation resistant industries or in, uh, industries that tend to benefit from inflation, they would include things like real estate, which we talked about earlier. Real estate is a hard asset. Uh, it's going to increase in line with inflation. Uh, commodity companies such as oil and gas, uh, such as metals and mining, these tend to benefit from inflation cycles uh, for the reason that the com underlying commodity prices are going to increase. Uh, we've kind of seen some of that already with supply chain disruptions, with some of the inflationary uh, pressures that we're having in the economy. And so commodities could be an interesting place to get exposure. However, again, with something like that, typically by the time that you know, you're buying into those types of commodity stocks, the commodity has already run up. And so there's an element of market timing there that uh, I don't particularly feel comfortable with. And so it's a little bit outside of my kind of experience set. Uh, the next one is financials. Uh, financials tend to benefit from an inflationary environment because rates are rising. And as interest rates rise, uh, financial companies tend to expand their margins, tend to make more money on mortgages. Um, and so that might be an interesting place to play. So for this part of my portfolio, I've just started to build it out. I'm still doing a lot of thinking about where I want exposure. Um, if we take a step back and think about why, why get into equities during an inflationary period, I think equities are a good traditional hedge. Um, maybe not the S&P 500 directly, but there are going to be certain stocks that have these characteristics uh, and they're going to survive the recession. And also keep in mind that when the recession kind of hits, when we're you know, very clearly in a recession, these um, you know, recession resistant industries, they're, they're the places where investors are going to flock to. They're going to sell out of tech. They're going to sell out of the higher risk um, categories and they're going to go straight to you know, consumer staples and park a lot of cash in those uh, categories. So I think getting in earlier uh, ahead of that recession, you're going to see some of that appreciation. Maybe you want to take some profits during that time. So that's something I'm thinking about. So one position that I have started to get into is a company called Chewy, uh, Chewy.com. So they are an e-commerce leader in the pets category. They're basically number one or number two alongside Amazon uh, for online pet shopping. So anything from food to toys, and they even have a uh, veterinarian, online veterinarian service. Uh, as, and they're also getting into things like pet insurance. So they're kind of like an all all-in-one stop shop for um, for pets category and what I like about this company is that uh, they're a pure play in the online space they don't have any brick-and-mortar stores uh, they're investing a lot into fulfillment centers making sure that they can retain that uh, number one or number two market share in what is a very fast-growing category it's growing at about 14% a year uh, they've managed to grow sales slightly faster than industry uh, although sales growth is slowing down um, after the huge bump from the pandemic but I like the pet space overall. I think um, people are going to continue to own pets, whether it's families or people who are single. Uh, big trend towards, uh, you know, additional pet ownership, owning more than one pet, um, as well as spending a lot of money on your pets, essentially. Um, so I really like this category. Chewy, I think, stands out to me uh, because they have over 70% uh, of sales as recurring auto ship purchase purchases, which means consumers are just, you know, setting it up as a sub subscription, essentially. Um, and the food, the, the dog food or the dog toys or whatever it is, is going to get shipped automatically every month or every couple of months. And so it gives a lot of predictability to their uh, to their revenue. They're still struggling a little bit with profitability, but I think that's going to come out uh, in the next couple of years. So I, I see this particular company uh, as a good buy at its current price. And I'll be looking for companies similar to Chewy, where they're, you're buying a number one or number two market leader. 
uh, it's a growing category, really good exposure to online, uh, the online e-commerce channel, and you're getting it at a decent valuation um, and it's able to grow into that valuation in the long term. So that's the opportunity that I you know, liked recently and I start to take a small position in it. So finally, just to wrap up my podcast, I want to talk a little bit about defensive cash flow strategies, um, kind of a complement to the defensive uh, portfolio that I mentioned earlier. So, you know, when it comes to your portfolio, that's there to help build long-term wealth. It's there to, um, you know, ensure that you can retire in 10 years or uh, make sure you can, you know, afford the type of lifestyle you want in the future. However, it's not particularly good for cash flow. Although in some cases like real estate, you might be able to rent it out, get some rental income. So that's a nice um, kind of two in one, if you will. Uh, so when you think about your portfolio, you want to have some cash flow strategies. So how am I going to pay the bills when it comes to my personal living expenses? And if there's any capital requirements from my portfolio, how am I going to meet those? So in my personal um, situation, I have a couple sources of cash flow right now. So number one is, you know, I'm working for an agency, so you can call this uh, employment or traditional employment. And that's just, you know, a paycheck every week, every two weeks. Um, and that's just a very standard source of cash flow. It's a good match with my mortgage because my mortgage is a very fixed payment. Uh, it is going to increase over time, however, but um, it gives me the stability to meet to meet those mortgage payments. And so uh, from a from a portfolio and cash flow standpoint, those two are, are a pretty good match. The second source of cash flow I currently have is self-employment, which is running my uh, my website, thedermdetective.com, which I've been doing for a few years. Uh, it's actually a very stable source of cash flow as well, and it has the opportunity to uh, to increase in the future uh, as long as I invest into it and work on it correctly. So I like those two sources of um, of income right now. I'll probably be exiting the employment one and focusing more on self-employment, focusing more on my own websites in the future. Um, I do like the cash flow potential of those types of digital properties. Um, and they're a really, really good funding match with the real estate requirements, which is paying your mortgage, uh, paying your utilities, paying um, your cost of living, etc. The uh, income sources that I tend to build in the next couple of uh, months and years is number one, having some rental income from renting out part of my house. So again, a very stable income. Um, really nice match with the real estate requirements. Uh, I'll also be doing some freelance work, offering my SEO services uh, to you know friends, to other um, companies, and just essentially structuring my employment opportunity more as a freelancer and yeah, making some cash flow from there. Uh, some other opportunities when it comes to cash flow is uh, taking. Hey guys, this is part two of my uh, episode for March 2022. Just got cut off there by my 30 minute limit here on Anchor. But I was just going to wrap up by saying that the last part of the cash flow equation when it comes to having a defensive cash flow strategy uh, is being able to borrow against any collateral, any assets that you have. Uh, again, here what we're doing is we're shorting or borrowing fiat dollars and we're going long or we're, we're buying into hard assets. So uh, the most natural example is in a real estate uh, investment, you're able to uh, borrow money through a mortgage against the collateral, which is your asset, your your house. Um, in my case, I'm actually going to do a refinancing of my current house uh, just because the, the comparable um, houses have actually already gone up in price. Uh, and so I'm able to do that, take out additional equity that I've built through the house and then take that funds and put it towards additional hard assets. So maybe investing it into uh, cryptocurrency, maybe investing it into um, into some of the defensive stocks that I spoke of earlier. Uh, another interesting thing and a bit more on the, you know, sort of the cutting edge um, is you can actually use some of your cryptocurrencies as collateral. 
Um, there's a bunch of um, providers like Celsius that provides this. Uh, but in my case, I can actually take some of the Bitcoin that I own, I can use it as collateral, and then I can take out a small loan against them, use that, and then use that to buy additional Bitcoin. So you're taking a levered position uh, on the on the actual asset. And I still overall, I like that as long as you're able to pay your financing costs, you're being very conservative with your leverage, you're not going overboard. Um, but it's, an, it's a very interesting way to take additional cash, essentially, it's not a traditional cash flow per se, like working for someone or working for yourself. Um, but it is a very interesting way to basically short more fiat dollars. Because right now, again, with inflation coming up, you want to borrow as much fiat dollars as you can afford to, uh, making sure you pay all the, the monthly commitments. Um, but then you want to take that invest into long, hard assets that are going to appreciate that are going to keep up with inflation and build wealth in the long term. All right, that's it for this uh, month's episode, a little bit longer than usual. Uh, I will speak to you guys next month, and I'll also have my Next Steps 2022 post ready, uh, which is going to outline kind of my plan and thinking uh, for my business ventures and some new ventures as well uh, in the next year and into 2023. Cheers.